And why did you want to run an ad on our podcast? You know, we see it as um, it's a different avenue. We didn't want to do the same thing. We didn't want to run an ad with a really annoying limerick or something. Yeah, we wanted to do something that firstly supported something in WA and also something that created content. As I said, I've listened to podcasts, you know, hundreds of podcasts in cars, on journeys, planes, around the field, rock chipping, mapping, whatever it is. And podcasts, great way to make that day just go a little bit quicker. We want to be a part of that. Hopefully they remember us because of whatever episode you've produced. In general, you know, we provide people, geos, field staff. We do some offsiders as well. We're providing vehicles and we sort of upgrade, upgrade those as well for exploration. So, that, you know, we fit them with long range tanks so the guys aren't having to worry about you know, how much fuel they've got. We want to be there and provide everything. We just want to make their lives easy. You want to be the bunnings of exploration. Yeah, anytime, anywhere, you know. Hi, I'm Seamus Murphy. I'm General Manager of Anytime Exploration Services, and you're listening to Exploration Radio. I'm your host, Ahmad, and this is Exploration Radio. You are listening to episode 67, which is part two of our discussion with Scott Briscoe on defining discovery. If you missed part one, check out episode 66. Let's explore. So Scott, previously when you were talking about the discussion that we were having was really around this talk that you gave around, you know, what is discovery? You gave this talk uh, in Denver as part of the Denver Mineral Symposium. I, I can't quite remember exactly what the title was. Yeah, I actually have to, to look up the title because I'm really terrible with remembering uh, titles. But um, uh, the thing that I do remember is the people that put it on was the the Denver Regional. Uh, here, let me see here. It's called uh, the Denver, Denver Mineral Exploration Summit. And the reason I remember who put it on is their acronym is DREGS. And so it's the Denver Regional Exploration Geology Society. So it's like the perfect name for a geology society, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we started this, I guess, part one of our kind of discussion around this talk that you gave, which is titled, What is Discovery? And what you really kind of dug into in that talk, or I guess what the two points that I got out of it were, were there were two things that kind of stood out to me. One is that the definition of discovery as in the semantics or the lexicon of that definition, aren't very well understood. You had this great slide where you, I think you'd asked a number of people and they all had very different definitions of, of, of discovery or what they would qualify as discovery. By extension, if you had so many different definitions of that word, then effectively that word has no definition really. Yeah, it, it's, really, it's really the power of the, the person really to decide what they want to call discovery and what they don't want to call discovery. Oh, yeah. And I was going to say, that's a big risk, too, when you think about it, right? Because if everybody is is pursuing discovery, well, we could be pursuing different things because we're defining it, different, right? So it's like what, what a discovery, and, and that makes sense to an extent, like where like what Newmont considers a discovery is different than, you know, like what a $15 million market cap junior would just consider it. So that was one of the things that, you know, we've created this kind of gap that we've created because, you know, like person A uses discovery in one way, you know, they're talking about apples, you know, this other person's talking about oranges and this third person could be talking about something completely different. In essence, we don't have a common language that when you use when we talk about discovery. And the second thing I think I for me that I got out of your talk was that it's actually hard to uh, know when you've discovered something as well. So A, the, the definition of it is hard, but also a lot of things at the early stage don't look like 
uh, discovery. You know, they don't look like the the obvious thing that we think of. Yeah, it's X million ounces of uh, of gold or it's X million tons of copper and nickel, whatever. Uh, and it's really hard to know that even early on kind of world-class systems. So that aspect of discovery is much easily defined in hindsight when people stand and go, well, clearly it's a 5 million ounce deposit. So it was a great discovery. And it's like, okay, but what does it look like from days one to 99? Yeah. As you said, it was really interesting because there was a, a, a copper explorer in the audience. And one of the questions they asked um, they, they ended up like turning it to like be kind of gold centric, but they did mention, well, this would look totally different if it was a, if it was a world class copper discovery, right? So if you found some brand new copper porphyry, and and at the same time, I kind of challenged that because we might know there's lots of copper in the system, but if you don't have that like kind of high grade core that seems to be really necessary to kick the economics up, do we even know if we have a, a world class copper porphyry discovery early on, right? And it's not my exploration search space, so I'm not uh, not versed in, enough to talk about it. But from what I've looked at, it's it's really easy to define things after the fact, but it's it's really challenging to recognize them when they're in front of you, and especially with all the day to day challenges that when you're when you're exploring, right? So it's like you've still got the drill turning, right? So it's like maybe you've you know drilled ten holes on this project and you've moved the rig off to this next project, and you have a sixty day turnaround. Well, what does that do to your discovery process, right? Because you think about oh, well, 60 days from now, I have to re-engage my brain in the initial drill program, what we were thinking, what we were looking at. And obviously, if you get some like ripping good intercepts, it's going to be, you know, like a different thing. Often that's not the case, right? Where you get, you know, um, I, I forgot how many deposits it were that wouldn't have been discovered in their first 30 holes or even 50 holes. And there's some that they say wasn't for 90 holes, right? So you're like, well, what if there's a 60-day lead time between when you get those results back? It, it even makes it harder to, to figure out what you have. Yeah, and I think that, I guess that was the point that I kind of uh, focused on is that even in world-class deposits, I think you know, like your example was great that by, I think it was like 20 drill holes or like 30 drill holes, it still was pretty sketchy on whether you, you've actually got a multi-million ounce system or not. So there were these two kind of ideas I guess I want to kind of explore in this talk that we're going to have. One is that... you. Yeah, from a, as a community point of view, we don't have a great definition of what discovery is. So are we all actually looking for the same thing? And you kind of mentioned this, yeah, like, are we all actually after the same thing? Or, or, or are we not? And then the second part of it is that when we are actually getting closer to something, we don't really know whether that thing is actually valuable or a a discovery in, in the true kind of lexicon that we would use it in. Yeah. And you think about that, because that's the time period when you're trying to raise more dollars when you're trying to convince the expiration manager or you know like whoever in your chain of command that that makes that decision to fund it again right and it's it's when it's not clear and so actually i wanted to read a quote on uh um so so i really i really like nick tate's stuff and so he he commented on one of the the posts and he, he said um Interesting perspectives. It demonstrates that the popular graphs of declining discovery rates are effectively impossible to assess because there's no standard definition of discovery. Graphs of new mines brought into production might be more robust, but of course they have a huge time lag compared to the expiration activity that generated them. So we talk about this all the time at every conference I go to, I'll look at the discovery you know, rate graph and it's like, well, if we can't even define it, how, how do we even put the things on the graph, right? It's like, oh, only one that gets to a million ounces or, or five million ounces. Well, what about like 
companies like um, Newmont and, uh, and Barrick and other big companies have been notorious for not talking about new discoveries they've made until they're really advanced down the, down the, the, the exploration pipeline. So you look at, there could be discoveries that have been made in the last even five years that still aren't even being discussed because they don't have, maybe they're still waiting for permits, right? Maybe they've, they have an economic, um, let's say a geologically interesting uh, uh, drill result, but they're still waiting for all the things that they would need to declare it. So how do we even make a graph? This is, I guess, one of the, like the root things that I guess I want to talk about is that it's exactly what you said, that if you can't define what discovery is, then maybe that graph is user-driven. So, you know, so the user has defined what they think are discoveries and then they've been put on there. Even flip this argument around and say, well, if we don't know uh, what a discovery is, then does the word discovery actually carry any any amount of value that we think it does? Because you know it's either being overused or underused at some point. So you know, so are we bastardizing the term because because we're using it too much and it's losing its kind of value along the way? It's really interesting because I think um, Newmont, for example, is very particular about this. And I won't go into what they call like in-house like that because I, I don't want to give away our, our company secrets. <laughs> They'll execute me in the middle of the podcast. It'll be bad. But uh, but um, but I, I think like they've they've become cognizant of that. If they sell up through the, the chain of command in the company that we've made a new discovery and then it falls on its face, they've recognized that, that you lose ultimately credibility. And I wouldn't say they're even too guarded about it it's like because you can you can do that too where you can say oh nothing's a discovery and then don't ever get yeah excited. and then you and you shoot yourself in the foot right because like you, yeah you, like yeah it's like did you find did you make any discovery no because yeah. you know they, they're like <laughs> yeah they're, they're so rare we, we haven't found anything and eventually people go well you know this discovery group doesn't seem to make any discoveries so like let's get rid of them yeah i mean you think about the you know, like the the budgets that that Newmont and Barrick and all these other majors put into the ground for for looking for new discoveries as well as for for growing their resource and reserve bases. It's a huge amount of money. We're pretty careful in house on on what we call that, and so I think like our team's pretty well aligned. Like when we when we've hit something new, we communicate it well within the group, and and then kind of like discuss a lot on what needs to be done before it makes it to the next stage. We can maybe be a little too conservative at times, but you compare it to the the, the flip side. Like I was reading some some juniors um, uh, press releases, and it's like you know mapping is a discovery where you found a new auriferous quartz vein, and it's like, but that doesn't do any justice either because because it goes back to the same issues credibility, right? So if you're trying to draw new investors, and I think one of your guests uh, um, maybe a year ago uh, talked about uh, the investors that we're trying to draw back into gold. They, they're done. They don't want to come back into gold, right? They got so badly burned that, that they just threw their hands in the air and they walked away from the, the, the space, right? And so then you're like trying to draw new investors in. And a lot of those are like mom and pop investors now. Like, you know, the, um, the, I think the stock market's greatly changed in, in the last couple of years. Again, I'm not an, ec- an economist, but, uh, but, but when I look at like the, the meme stocks and things like that, you know, where, where people on, on Reddit are driving, driving up uh, uh, stock prices greatly based on discussions. I could, you could be a cynic and say that they're trying to do it like a pump and dump and all that. But I think a lot of those people are genuinely like, no, 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 this needs to change. We need to look at this differently. So if we're trying to attract investors like that and they take all these, these press releases at face value, they come into the industry, they start investing, 
and then they get burned. I always toy around with following different different junior stocks. And I, I hardly ever invest in any actual mining companies, which is kind of a, a sad thing in itself. And and I look at like I'm, I'm really glad I haven't because I my my portfolio would be a massive loss. And I look at I'm not an uneducated investor in terms of knowing the technical side and knowing what management teams need to do. And so if I would be getting burned, if I had invested real money, imagine what the mom and pop investors and imagine what they'd be saying on Reddit. If they're like, they said they had a new discovery and it turns out it's this meaningless thing that, that, that nobody even agrees on. You know, It's a real change we need to make in the way we talk about these things. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think so I'm going to throw out a term here like, you know, like I actually think that, uh, you know, like in marketing, there's this term called uh, like puffery uh, of the a puffery of marketing. And it's essentially uh, like, you know, a thing like a puffery marketing is like a statement that has no legal meaning and it's always open to interpretation. Uh, so, for example, like, you know, if I was making T-shirts, I could uh, in my ad claim that it's the world's most comfortable T-shirt. And and it's like, well, how do you actually prove that, right? I can't prove it. Uh, yeah, it's it's never provable. Or like, you know, car ads often have like uh, industry leading uh, in its class or something like that. And it's like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, you know, like how, how like what's the definition of that? Oh, I don't know. Like, you know, can't like it's nothing you can ever sue me for, but I can say it and it sounds great. And I think actually the, the you know the kind of a lot of the industry, particularly like the junior side, but I think like, you know, most mineral exploration industry is kind of falling in the same trap where the term discovery is becoming like puffery marketing, you know, where anytime anyone finds something, they go, it's discovery, because it's the only way investors will look at it. Yeah. And then and, and there's no other way to kind of attract people's attention. So you have to say it's like one intersection, you know, one anomaly, one soul sample that goes and it's like it's discovery. Uh, because it's the only thing that cuts through the noise anymore with with investors. Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting. I look back in like early in my career when I was doing a bunch of rock chip sampling and mapping and things, and at the time, you know, it, it was all the things that led up to like a discovery that we had made on that project. But I can't even imagine going to market with those. You know, like oh yeah, we got a you know quarter ounce gold. So you know, like I just can't even imagine it because at the time. Like, I think you would have been, I hate to say like laughed off the, the the investment platforms, but like people wouldn't have taken it seriously. And that was, that was not that long ago, right? 15, 18 years ago or whatever. And, um, and I look at, as we, we hit this almost like, like desert of, of new discoveries, which however we want to define them, I think like everybody can agree that that's pretty much going on across the board, whatever commodity you're talking about, you know, when was the last nickel discovery and when was the last, you know, like say uranium discovery, because, you know, that like, probably hasn't been one since Fukushima, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so, you know, you look at all these things, it's like, as that's waning, yeah, as you said, people are, are, are trying to get interest in it. And it's almost like um, the boy who cried wolf type situation, right? Where People aren't looking at the impact to the industry. They're looking at the impact of their individual stock. And they're going, I, I desperately need to raise money right now. You know, like I've got, maybe they've got a great product, right? I've got a great project and I have no way to separate, you know, like the wheat from the chaff and, and to get investors to recognize this is a great project. And, and so what do I say to get people on board? And, and I think we like, I don't know, I go back to I'll probably again, uh, get myself into trouble with some of this stuff, but I go back to like things like the 43101 and all these instruments. A lot of those were designed to prevent another BREX, right? And, and you go back to like, well, 
will they actually prevent another BREEX? Because, you know, they say, oh, yeah, like, you know, the independent uh, person going to visit the site will, will catch those things. And I go, yeah, maybe, you know, like, like, would you really stop that? But at the same time, what it has stopped is I feel kind of like the basics of expiration success, right? You know, because like people are so focused on how to get this thing translated into a 43101 and the cost associated with it and the time associated. And, uh, and I think it's like, it's, it's fundamentally changed the industry, but not necessarily in all, all good ways. I mean, there, there are many good things about it. I'm not trying to say it's a, a bad thing to do, but it almost goes back to maybe they need to have a term that defines discovery. I think that's kind of the issue. Like if you're an investor and what you're told is that if you're investing in the junior market, you know, what you really got to be investing in is a company that's making a discovery, right? And then as an investor who maybe does, doesn't have the background knowledge to actually discern, you know, like good projects, bad projects, good results, bad exploration results, you're just being bombarded by all these companies saying discovery, I found a discovery, I got a discovery, I got a discovery. And, and so as an investor, your attention is being diluted by all of these companies saying discovery. Um, and I think so this goes back to kind of like your problem of the charts. And I and I think one of the problems with it is that, yeah, like people go, oh, you know, juniors make more discoveries. And it's like, well, yeah, because everyone in the junior space calls everything a discovery. So, yeah, so there's just like the, the, the number of them is just higher. And so, so the junior market is getting more aggressive about calling everything a discovery. And the major market is getting more conservative about calling something a discovery because you know they, they really needed to be a lot bigger for it to be meaningful to them yeah and it's it's interesting because like and not to go too much into the politics of it and things like that but leading up to like the nevada gold mines uh, transaction the way that newmont reported their resource and reserves and and kind of like mineral inventory was very different than what, what barrick did and so essentially when people weighed those two companies and these are the two biggest gold mining companies on the planet right but when people weighed those two companies they, they didn't have a fair shake of how their projects actually weighed up against each other. And, and that's like, they're, and they're, they're, you know, they're following all the rules. They're doing all the, the resource reporting by the, by the jurisdictions they're in. Newmont was a U.S. traded thing. So it's much more uh, stringent on like, you can't even talk about inferred resource. And, and, uh, and uh, well, now you can with the new, um, the new changes to the SEC. But you're looking at like, those are the two biggest gold companies. And I think the investors are confused about what they actually have. And, and it's, how do you how do you you know justify this for like the juniors right like and and then you get into things like how remote is the project right like a discovery in Nevada is significantly just different than a discovery in you know like the the interior of Alaska or in, in the Yukon or or even you think about like it, like in the middle of Australia right where you get into the the Nullarbor Plain and it's like that presents a whole level of, of challenges that you wouldn't have if you're near a city right like the fly and fly out market's different the you know like bringing equipment in is is everything has changed right and so you know it's really hard for people to to weigh uh, what is a discovery and, and what does it mean? Because I think ultimately that's what we really care about is, is what does it mean? If you're an investor and you're trying to get in at that ground floor, you know, like before the company takes off and the stock triples or goes up even 10 times or 30 times, um, you know, that's, that's when you make your, your real money. And that's what people are trying to time. Right? They're trying to jump in before it's gone on to the stock forums and everybody's talking about it. Because like, I, I remember like, Early on in my, my my career, I invested in a little junior, and I tried to invest in it um, when they basically were almost on the verge of bankruptcy. 
And, and I, it was so funny. I tried to invest $400 and I got a market, uh, sorry, a message back saying this would unduly influence the price on the stock market. You need to do a smaller transaction. And I was like, it's $400. And if I had invested at that level, I would have made $45,000 on my, my 400 because of where it ended up going to. As it was, I still made a fair, a fair bit of money, but it was like, Nobody ever times that. And of course, I didn't have any real money because it was like early in my career and like, you know, I had kids and stuff like that. But it's like everybody wants to jump in at that and make, you know, 10,000 fold or, or a thousand fold or even a hundred or, or tenfold like return on their investment. Right. And um, and that's the thing that they're trying to suss out when they when they read these press releases and they go, "Ooh, you know, what's this company got? And it's just what a what a it's almost like an injustice and i hate to call for like more regulations and things like that and in, in in the way we we report these things but it's yeah we're not doing anything to protect the investors and uh and 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 likewise you know i forgot how many companies there are on the the tsx venture exchange and and you know on the australian exchanges there was something like four thousand juniors and i would hazard a guess that 500 of them have a real project maybe and so you're looking at, if you're an investor, there's 3,500 companies that you can invest in and get burned on. And there's maybe 500 that have a real project. That's kind of the challenge is that, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I totally understand why junior companies behave that way. Yeah, like if I'm a junior company, what's the, like at the end of the day, until I get to uh, having a meaningful project or a meaningful discovery or meaningful uh event you know like uh discovery hall or anything like that all i'm trying to do is kind of stay afloat so so i'm going to do whatever i can to stay front of mind of investors as long as i can um and so yeah so if that means that i have to you know like for all intents and purposes cry wolf so investors look at me and then put money in so i can then go raise money and do something with my project yeah like why wouldn't i do it because yeah, like, hey, like, I got to survive, like, you know, like, I got to get to the finish line somehow. Uh, and I'm not going to get there by running out of money. And then, you know, like completely blowing up the company and going bankrupt. So so I so I totally understand why junior companies fall into that trap. Uh, so it's not to say that they're doing something bad or anything like that. No. I think they're just fighting for their survival in a lot of ways. I think I think that's exactly it. Like, I look at like companies I've worked for in the past and like friends that I have, you know, cause like you, you get to know people in the industry and they work for every, every company on, on earth. Basically there's someone that, you know, this, you know, that the works with them. Right. And so like, I know a lot of, a lot of good management teams, good geologists with good projects struggling to raise money, especially in this environment. Right. And um, you know, like you see, I don't know, I've seen a number of press releases where it's like, Oh, we're going to raise three or 5 million bucks. And then they raise 300, thousand or four hundred thousand so it's like oh you're barely going to stay in business and you might have to let your entire geology staff go if if you can't raise more money and so it's like yeah they definitely need something to to be able to differentiate themselves and it's like and you know the average investor has no idea who the who the um the management teams are right like that it's very difficult to to like kind of investigate you know like oh who's this chief geologist this project and oh okay they're really good and they've got a good track record you know because they'll all say that on their on their 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 about me pages right but it's like trying to actually figure out who's good and who's not and and who's made made discoveries and who's been associated but claimed that they made the discovery right and it's yeah that stuff's impossible and so it's yeah and going back to like that talk it's um even if you make a discovery, even if you go and you you have some great drill results come in, which is ultimately, like I always call it the truth machine, right? So like that's 
you know, that's the machine that doesn't lie to you. You know, obviously you can like drill like down, down veins and things like that, but like through time, you know, that that's the only way that we understand what's, what's going on. And you look at like, how hard is it even to define at that stage? Right. You know, like we're, we're in that talk, I ran all these kind of random poles of collars, which is like, this is after it's been drilled. And, and it's like a number of the, you know, 10, 20 whole programs would have failed to find that, that world-class system and so it's like, if you go back to like drill pattern really matters, the orientation of your drilling really matters, the data you collect really matters. And and if you're trying to like differentiate yourself and you say you put in that drill program, like that first uh, 11 holes, and I think one of them had uh, uh, over a hundred gram meters, you put that out to market. I I don't even know if the market would move right now on that. I don't even know if you could raise money <laughs> on that. So, and it's that's like, high. and that's now a world-class system, but you know, you don't know until you do that second phase program. That's high. And I think so. The, yeah. So we talk about like the junior space where it's creating this problem where, you know, because it's hard for them to define what discovery is, each junior company is kind of applying its own definition to that word. And they're then using that to attract investors. But I think in the uh, the major space, I think it's even, you know, it's a similar problem in that if you can't define what discovery is and you can't identify it early enough, then yeah, like how do you actually progress projects through by by knowing whether uh, whether they're going to become something or not? You know, a company like Newmont could have a hundred gram per meter intersection, but what does it mean to them, right? Because a system that they would mine needs to have you know like X number of them, or like, and that X is definitely greater than one, right? So, so it's like. Yeah, so and so I think like you know like so so major companies sometimes I mean the ones that I worked in like you know we we would have to come up with some other mechanism of kind of identifying whether this project meets some threshold that we want and usually you know they they're called many different things but you know the companies I worked in they were always called MRT you know the the minimum resource threshold and it, and it's like okay well so let's take your example right so if if a large company defines a discovery with an MRT a minimum resource threshold. Well, how do I know whether it meets it after before any holes are drilled or after 10 holes are drilled or after 20 holes are drilled or after 30 holes are drilled? And so and it becomes this problem where someone goes, well, does this meet our MRT? And you're like, well, mate, we've drilled two holes into it. I got no idea. Right. And they're like, well, we need to know that as quickly as possible before we progress. And it's like, well, now we like, you know, like because we can't answer the question of what is a discover, like what is a genuine discovery? We're now creating another question that we want people to answer, which is, well, how big is a resource? You're like, well, I don't even know if it's a discovery or not. <laughs> and it's it's a really I think that's like like the key thing when I talk to like the site teams and things like that, you know, uh, unnamed big companies, you know, like I, I've, I've seen have these various things of like risking and, and reducing risk on, on resource deliveries. Right. And, and sometimes it becomes almost comical where it's like, okay, so we think we have potential for know, like a million ounce system or whatever. And by the time you've like risked it down, it's like, Oh, it's 10,000 ounces. It's not worth drilling. And it's like, what? That's not how you do expiration. You know, it's just like, like, you, you know, it's easy to, to kill off all your projects early on. And so like kind of the thing that I'm, I'm encouraging some of our, our teams to do now. And it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes like, uh, um, cause you think about all, all of our geos have worked for big companies for, for the most part, some of them have come in from the little companies and things like that. Um, and Newmont and, and Barrick and all these other big companies are great at like resource reserve conversion, uh, some of them are great at expiration too, um, but some of them, like 
it's like a new way of thinking, right? If you've been a mind geo all your career and now you're having to step out into Brownfield's expiration, what does success look like? And so I always kind of go back to that idea of like this exercise I did for that talk, take your own company data set and reduce it down to what would it look like if I have, for example, like in Timmins, we have Hoyle Pond mines. So what would it look like with the first 10 holes that got drilled into Hoyle Pond? What would it look like with the first 30 or 50? What if I drilled it differently? What if I, you know, like what if my exploration strategy is drilling all shallow holes? What, and I, and I only looked in through the shallow hole database, would I find it? What if it's only drilling all deep holes? What if it's a mix? And so I think ultimately for us to recognize what new discoveries look like, we have to actually have the context of what a discovery looks like on the site we're exploring now, right? And so if you're in the Carlin trend and you're discovering, it's going to be a very different thing than, than if you're in, I don't know, Batu Hijau or if you're in, um, you know, the Tanami or something like that. And so I, I go back to the site teams ultimately who are doing exploration, they need to look at what, what does the footprint of a system look like early on, right? And, you know, can you recognize it with just gold? Like if, if we're all, if, you know, like if, because uh, I know in the past, like everybody was just doing gold assays, right? So That's it's like, right. Yep. so are you- Which is an important CDL? point as well, right? Like, because yeah, if you're all you're using is gold and then yeah, you're, you're essentially saying you're going to have to find the mineralization before you find anything else. Uh, so, you know, so what does an EMS look like? You know, like what, what, what if you're just on the edges of a system and all of those kind of questions come into play as well. Yeah. And then, and then what orientation do you drill at, right? You look at like our, our project at Muscle White is a real shallow plunging kind of ore shoot, right? And it's a really cool looking system. But it's like, if you drill a vertical hole, what are the odds you're going to hit it versus if you drill an angle hole? And so it's, it's really key for like geos to recognize what are they actually looking for? What does success look like from a known system? And, um, and, and how much can you tell from one drill hole or 10 drill holes, right? And uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, it, it, again, it almost sounds like a bit like a cop-out where it's just like, oh, well, every discovery should be defined by the discoveries near it. It's like, okay, that does not apply in the greenfields because you don't have any discoveries near it. So now you have to think a totally different way, right? And so it's, I, it's, it's actually one of my favorite, favorite uh, conundrums when I go and talk to site teams is um, you know how do we how do we improve our expiration success? How do we improve how we can recognize if we've had success? And um, and then like one of the things that's always entertaining to me as well is you look at some of these big camps like Timmins or like obviously we don't own Valdor, but like Valdor is another giant one in, in Canada, and then you can look at any across the world. And and you go to well, what's alteration? You know is like, like St. Ives is a good example, or if I remember right, uh, almost every single mine had a different alteration signature, right? So it's like, you know, one of them, there, there's a great paper on fluid mixing. And it's like, okay, we had clinozoocyte in these veins, and we had epidote in these veins, and, and where the, the two mix, they, they destabilized the gold fluids and precipitated out a bunch of gold. That, I think, only worked at that one deposit. So it's like, so if you're using that as your criteria for like, oh, we need to see epidote clinozoocyte in different veins, well, you wouldn't find the other ones, right? And so it's like every system has so many, and I always talk about it as like, you know, like if you essentially source your fluids from whatever, like I actually don't have a dog in the fight of what the fluid source is, whether it's, you know, like uh, from intrusives or whether it's orogenic fluids or whatever. Like, cause I go at this point, it's so academic. It doesn't actually affect us. It does on the crustal scale when we're looking to what camps we want to get into. So if you're doing green fields exploration, that stuff matters. Um, but once you're like in a camp, I go, okay, that fluid has come up from whatever source and it has 
has gone like some fluids went along this pathway and then some fluids kind of went along this shallower structure and oh now they've interacted with different wall rock and so like this fluid now has a totally different composition than that fluid and by the time they get to their final destination of the the trap or the the what was going to become the ore host they are totally different fluids so if they hit the same rock they're going to look like totally different alterations and so i go like don't limit yourself to saying i need to find potassic alteration or whatever it's like maybe that deposit has that but maybe this one has amalbite and maybe this one has you know like the the epidote you know uh, uh clinozoocyte and and so it's it's so difficult to i kind of uh, impress that upon people it's just like be open-minded right it goes back to like that whole idea of like you know, the, the, the ore host is going to be whatever's better than its neighbors. And it's going to be whatever's best for the ore fluid, right? So, like, I worked at one deposit where, where um, and I might have talked about this already, but, like, one of the intrusive rocks was basically in chemical equilibrium with the ore fluid. And so it had almost zero visible alteration. And, but then the rocks next to it would be, like, you'd have this nice rheological contrast. You'd build, like, a nice ore system right next to it. But if you had happened to just drill into that one rock, you would have been like, ah, oh, it's deader than a doornail. Walk away. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. So. And I think this is, I mean, yeah, like the, what you're kind of identifying is like the complexity in certain geological systems. Yeah, yeah, like gold deposits can be found in basically any host rock. So, so yeah, so you, so you can't uh, condense it into a a framework that you can just kind of cookie cutter from one area to another. And I think sometimes, you know, like, and I understand why the, you know, like the certain management of certain companies want that kind of cookie cutter approach to go, well, you know, we have 50 projects on the go. Which one of these looks like a discovery like this? Like, yeah, like, can I look it through this lens and does it, does it look exactly the same or does it not look exactly the same? And I think that creates a, a, a kind of a problem for, for us practitioners because it's hard for us to identify what something looks like until we get closer to the end. You know, like it's, it's really hard for us to tell at the start and in the middle. And, and, I, and I can kind of see like why that language is a problem even in big companies, you know, because the, the corporate guys want something that, that can be condensed into a meaningful kind of, like I guess a soundbite you know, that they can take and they can communicate. But on the other hand, you're talking about something that has this enormous level of complexity, which they want to condense down to like a one line item or something like that. And I, and I just think like, yeah, it's like, yeah, like one person speaking English and the other person speaking Klingon and like, yeah, it's not going to kind of like marry easily in the middle. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing you think about. Most big companies don't have geologists. At the top. Obviously, Barrick is an exception. Um, but most of them, they're people that have worked their way up the ranks through through other practices in, in mining, right? So whether they're mining engineers or accountants or or even like lawyers, right? And like, and we always talk about, you know, like the, the lawyers running companies and things. I think Roy Woodall has some great quotes on that. But whatever that situation is, we have no control on it. That's up to the board of directors, the investors, right? And so ultimately, we have to find a way to communicate with those people, right? And so you're communicating incredibly difficult concepts and ideas. And like, and if you can't define what success looks like, why are they going to buy it, right? It's like, why are they going to fund it? And, and so it goes back to like, um, uh, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the how to win friends and influence people, right? It's like, kind of like one of the key things in there is, if you're selling something, and this is, we're selling ideas, right? If you're selling something, you have to find out what the buyers actually want, right? What is their need? Because if you're 
product isn't filling that need and you don't want to be like the used car salesman too, where you're just giving them a bunch of BS and stuff. True. But if you're like selling them something that they don't care about, they're not going to, going to say yes to it no matter what you do. Right. And, and so it's like, okay, what do they care about? And then how do I, how do I simplify this? Right. And like, um, our, um, I probably, I'm not sure if I could tell the story, but I, I will. So our um, uh, senior VP of exploration was talking to one of our, our high, high corporate guys and was explaining um, uh, drilling at this one project. And he had a, a muffin and he's like, you know, talking to him at breakfast. And he's like, all right, so if we're drilling, we've got toothpicks and we're trying to stab him into this muffin to find the chocolate chips. And so, you know, we're stabbing in here and he's like, and how many, how many toothpicks do I have to stab into this muffin before, before we find the chocolate chips? And then like breaks open the muffin. And he's like, oh, it turns out it's like a raisin muffin. And so if we were looking for chocolate chips, well, we actually found raisins. Is that success or failure? <laughs> right? And he's like, so some of the time we have to figure out ways to tell, like describe the, the systems and to describe an analogy in a way that the, the people will, will understand. Right. And I look at like, I think that actually worked really well because in this case, you know, like both raisins and chocolate chips are or but they're, they're different alteration patterns. They're different things. And so if you use the criteria, I'm going to find a chocolate chip, well, you, you didn't find anything because that's a, that's a raisin muffin, right? And so, and yet we found something because that, that raisin muffin is, is, you know, it's got the prize there, right? And so, and I go back to such a simple analogy, but it's like, has anybody explained that to the, to the corporate folks that, that don't, dig into like detailed geology that don't have a geology degree and, and haven't gone on sat on an expiration rig. Cause it's like, if we expect them to be like us and to understand geology, that's, that's not what they're there for. That's not why they were put into that job. Right. The board of directors presumably had a reason to choose this person or that person. And so we need to translate it in a way that they can understand and find useful. Right. And, and I think this is like a great example of um, how I think sometimes, you know, like groups kind of stumble over their own feet in a lot of ways because they go, it's like, you know, like what's the KPI of, of the exploration team? It's like, oh, well, to make discoveries. Um, and it's like, okay, well, if we can't define discovery, you know, like how do we actually know whether, we, whether we've been successful or not? Um, and so, and, and you know, it's like, okay, well, like what's our KPI? It's like to make discoveries. And it's like, all right, great. But what, like, what is a discovery? What do we qualify it as? You know, when do we know we have one? When, when do we know that we definitely have one? And, and all these things. It's, so I think like, you know, in the world of kind of condensing everything down to a metric, you know, we kind of lost sight of the fact that actually the metric that we're using is incredibly hard to define and it's incredibly hard to identify. So, so, so maybe that's not the best metric. You know, maybe maybe a more appropriate metric would be it's like, yeah, uh, you know, like what does success look like for an exploration group? Well, success looks like, you know, replacement of uh, reserves or something like that. And it's like, OK, well, that that's something tangible that we can kind of get to. You know, it doesn't mean that we have to sit around and define, like, is this a discovery? Is this going to offset this? like, you know, this development project that we have and all of those kind of things. And I think that, you know, that's, I think, one of the kind of the challenge that that we're kind of finding now is when people go, well, exploration isn't returning uh, any value. And, and, and like, you know, my question a lot of the times is, well, how do you define value first? Then let's figure out whether we're actually meeting that metric or not. Because if you're telling me that, you know, like if exploration's job is to make discoveries, well, like, I'm not really sure what that discovery kind of looks like. I mean, in your example, like your his, like your example is a great one, right? Like it would be interesting to know the the dollar figure that actually had to be spent 
to take it from hole number one to take it to hole number whatever n that allowed you to get to the minimum resource threshold, right? The 2.5 million ounces or something like that. Like, what was that dollar value? Because if that dollar value, you like, you know, if you're not getting that dollar value in, in year number one, then it's kind of hard or, or completely useless to try to see whether you're going to actually get to kind of your whatever minimum threshold that will qualify it as a discovery. There's a lot of key things that we we need to be better at identifying and recognizing as an industry and, and as individual geologists too, right? So so going back to to when we first do a drill grim, it's like, all right, what do you actually request for? What do, what are you, are you going to put in and say, oh, well, I'm afraid that they're not going to fund a 20 hole program. So I'll put in for three holes. And then you drill three holes and they're almost guaranteed to be dusters because that's the way it works. Right. And well, then you walk away from that target because they're not going to invest a second you know, round. And so it's almost like, do you be bullish and you say, okay, we're going to do, we're going to commit 50% of our, 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 um, you know, Brownfield's drill budget to this one target and we're going to drill 25 holes or whatever. And then you go, okay, all your eggs are in one basket. What if that basket's not the one with eggs in it? <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And it's, and I think this is the art form of exploration, right? It's, it's managing expectations. It's also, um, I think, I think geos would be well-versed and understand more about like human psychology and things like that as well. Because I, I I go back to that whole idea of like okay so if I if I put in twenty five drill holes in this one area is that an adequate test is it overboard is it underkill is is five holes is is a hundred holes because there is a point where people will go there's no way we're going to pay for you to grid drill the 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 Tanami Desert or whatever right <laughs> and, and so you know there there is a a, a limit there and. Um, but then it goes back to like, you have to define success up front, right? Like, our, like because if I say, okay, um, I'm going to put a drill program in 15 holes and I don't tell anybody what my success metric is. And then we drill the 15 holes and we have like buku alteration, but we have no goal. And so oh, do we walk away? But if I had said in my thing, like we're looking for an alteration footprint to understand if there's a system here that's sizable enough to host the amount of ounces we're looking for, and then I don't have any gold results, but I show the systems there. Well, that's 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 the success criteria. You have to get people to agree to it, right? So you have to say, okay, here's what I'm looking for. And and so it goes back to like me. You know, I always go, I hate I hate when people are doing like strat holes because I think it just sounds kind of um, like, are we are we looking for gold systems or not? You know, but I understand why we do it, right? Because we're we're looking to say, well, what's this what's the stratigraphy look like? What's alteration look like? What's what's it look like away from the system? Because like some of these systems, like you look at like in Timmins, if you take a sample from the highway next to the Hollinger mine, it's probably going to be altered, right? Because there's like 25 million ounces next door, right? So I have to go how far away from the Hollinger mine before I find a dead sample, right? Is it 100 meters? Is it 10 kilometers, <laughs> you know, like, like, where is that? Right. And so, so I kind of go back to that, that idea, like the strat holes. Well, sometimes that's really key. If I, if my success metric is I need to understand what unaltered rock looks like. So I'm going to drill into a similar lithology away from the system. Obviously that doesn't sound like I'm looking for gold and which, you know, I might, might find it. Right. But, um, but it's like, I'm trying to understand my system so I can quantify what's going on close. 
But I have to sell that to management. I have to tell them what to expect from my drill program. Because if they come back and everything's double lot squat, they're not going to be interested. And they're going to be like, oh, well, this is garbage program. But if you, if you say, here's what the success criteria was, and we've met it, then this is why we want to do a second phase of drilling is, um, you know, because we've now seen the alteration footprint, or we've seen the structural complexity we're looking for, or something as simple as the geological model didn't didn't match what we saw in drilling. And so something is going on there that like, I always joke around, like one of the best tools that LeapFrog has is, you know, creates all the weird bubbles and stuff. If you let it drive itself, look at where it's not making sense because there's usually something going on there, right? So it's like, maybe that's your success criteria is to say, we're, you know, we have the, the structure projected to be doing this. And, you know, if it does something different, maybe, but yeah, but you have to define it. You have to talk about it. And, and it's really challenging if you take people who have only done mine geology or only done green theology, it's really challenging to bring them into a brownfields environment and say, okay, now, now make success, you know? Because then the idea is like, oh, you're going to center punch an ore shoot. What are the odds, right? Like you look at Hoyle Pond as, you know, four and a half million ounces or whatever, like, like probably seven million ounce total system size, some, something like that. I, don't, I can't remember. I should, but I can't. Um, anyways, what are the odds that you're going to center punch the, the main ore shoot in that system with, yeah, it's, it's almost impossible. But, but at the same time, if you drill it and you're like, oh, we're seeing some really interesting things in the structures, you know, like we're seeing some folding that's implying that there's a structure here that, that's caused this. And, and so now we're going to play in our second phase to take it and look for these things. But it's, I almost feel like when I started in geology, people were more robust about this. And like, you look at like WMCs, like I think really well known for documenting projects, right? So you can pick up a report from WMC and know exactly what they did and what their criteria were and what, you know, like, and then at the end of the day, what they found, right? So it's like, here's what we were looking for. We didn't find it, blah, blah, blah. So it's really well documented. I've worked for some companies where like, they just drilled and it's like, no documentation, no no record of what they were looking for or what success looked like or what yeah, or failure why like. or, or anything like that. And I think this is, um, yeah, like in the, in the first interview that we did, you kind of gave this analogy of fishing, you know, like in fishing is similar to exploration. And I think this, this is, I guess, kind of the concept is that, you know, like we define discovery as, as a destination that, you know, we get to a point where we find a deposit that looks this big and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe discovery is a process, Right, that we need to do certain things, uh, and then and the outcome of that could be the actual discovery of a deposit, or it could be um, knowledge that you gain that allows you to make a decision one way or the other, or whether you stay in this project or not. And I th- and I think you know, like you know, like maybe we've kind of muddled that kind of understanding to go that actually des- like discovery has to be a destination. It has to be that we get to the X marks the spot and we find the deposit and all of that stuff. Maybe it actually has to be that we gotta like remember that it it's um it's it's the the process that it takes to get there and the consequence of that process is a, a discovery of a new deposit and and then success and et cetera et cetera et cetera. Yeah, and I think I think that's really key is um sometimes when we're weighing work programs and what we've done, I I often ask like what what are you guys looking to do? What what programs have been done? What's been successful here? Like maybe. Maybe on this project, rock chips are great. Maybe on that project, soil samples are great. Maybe there's 100 meters of cover and neither of those is going to be great. Or, or maybe, you know, biogeochem. There's all these different things. And so I, go, I always go back to like that process is never linear. 
because it's going to be tailored to each project type and each kind of expiration concept. So that kind of means you have to come up with an expiration concept. And so you go, okay, well, have you done lithogeochem? Have you done four acid digest versus two acid digest, right? And it's like, if you're looking to understand, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, what kind of rock types you're having and what kind of alteration you're seeing, you should have a digest that's actually going to tell you that, right? And so I think like a big part of what I, what I do in my job is when I go to sites, I ask a lot of, I ask a lot of questions. So I, I always feel bad because I'm, I'm now that corporate shill that's putting people on the spot. Right. But it's like, I want to make sure that they're thinking about that as a process and not a linear, but just as a process, like, okay, so in order to develop up this target, what do we need to have more confidence in it? You know, like maybe it's not drill. Maybe at this stage it's, um, you know, like, look, we did air mag and um, uh, we really, really like what we're seeing, but we need to do a little bit tighter spacing and, uh, you know, like whatever. Right. And so, so it's always, I think what we need to do is say what needs to be done to improve our understanding. Cause what you don't really want to do. And, and there's been some debate on whether you'd actually be more successful, which is grid drilling a project. Right. Um, but you don't want to be like seeing, see, like, just like, oh, we've given up on doing all geology, so now we're just doing a grid drill. Maybe that's actually, maybe there's value in that, right? Like the whole Air Corps programs in Australia are like wildly successful in terms of, yeah, like there's no other way we would have ever gone out there except for this grid drilling project. So maybe there is value to it. But it's it's like, yeah, we need to define what do we what do we need to know? What do we in order to make our next decision point, whether that's drilling or whether that's just committing to doing a ground, you know, like, like basically outcrop mapping. Um, what do we need to know to, to do more? Right. And it's, and it's kind of funny because I think like a lot of geos I've worked with so many smart geos, like, like I always, like one of the things I love is uh, I, I long ago realized I'm not the smartest person in the room. And so I love working with these people and getting their input on things. And so what I try to do is ask questions that make them think about it in a different way, because then I go, they have the skills and experience to see this, Whereas I've just walked onto this project and I, I don't, I don't even know what the basic rock types are. Right. <laughs> and, and so it's like, what matters here? What's important? What do you guys find uh, is key for, for this? And I think um, like through that questioning and answering process, you can, you can dig into so much and you can learn so much about like, okay, so what would be successful here? All right. So, you know, you, you probably don't want to do um, soil geochem because you've got, um, you know, like, fluvial or so you got like a lacustrine cover or maybe there's like these real nice clays in your lay or whatever right and it's just like but you have to understand that right so it's like maybe maybe you're going and trying to understand your geomorphology maybe you're trying to understand okay so again it's like what i talked about earlier so we don't drill geophysical targets you you kind of try to understand what the anomaly is telling you about the rock right why is it more dense there is it a rock type change is it an alteration change and it's like yeah and so I think that's the thing that I see is, is people, and I, and I've worked for juniors where we didn't have any money to do anything. And so we had time so we could do mapping and we had money to drill. So it was like mapping, drilling, not even like, you know, rock chip sampling, not even geochem, you know, like, like you couldn't even imagine doing a soil survey, right. Let alone like an aeromag survey. And it's like, okay, so everybody has their own, their own situation. Right. And so this project maybe maybe they're drill ready and they can like hit the ground running and they just set up set up rigs and it's like and you get a little rig preserve going and maybe this other project isn't even ready to to do a soil geochem survey because we don't even understand the geomorphology right and it's it's like what does what would the samples even mean if you took a soil survey right and so yeah so it's all about 
trying to understand where we're at and then where we're going and what the next step is. And that next step is always the challenge, right? Cause it's like, it's, and it's funny because it's where people hesitate the most. And again, I work with these great geos. So I really, I mean, like I, I, I had the site visit uh, uh, a week or so ago and it was just phenomenal. Like these geos were just so fired up and so excited. And so it's like, well, let's go out and look at some rocks in the field. And it's like, you know, maybe, maybe just visiting an outcrop that's been mapped by some PhD student will actually trigger something in our understanding of the deposit that reading the map didn't. Because it always goes back to like, uh, I'm not sure if I talked about this already, but you know, like the magic eye puzzles from like the 90s where like there was all these weird patterns. And like when you first saw it, you're like, someone made a book of random noise. Okay, great, you know? And, uh, but until someone tells you how to see it and so how to, how to translate that into then your mind seeing this image in 3D, all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's dolphins jumping out of the water, you know? And someone's like, you're crazy. That's how structural geology is to me. Like, if you don't know what like S3 foliation looks like and all you see is the dominant S2 foliation, until someone points out what S3 foliation is, you might not have ever mapped it, right? And so I always go back to like, you know, obviously there's some great PhD candidates and students that are doing this work. So I'm not trying to belittle people, but you only know what you've been trained to know and what you picked up in your own experience, right? So you can have someone that comes out and has never mapped a stretching lineation before. So they've done this great PhD quality map, but they, there's no stretching lineations measured because they didn't know what they looked like. Right. And so then you go out to visit an outcrop and you're like, oh, check it out. There's a stretching lineation and it's, oh, hey, it's parallel to the orange shoot. That's really interesting. Maybe we should measure these. You know? yeah. and so, but also like um, it's I think one of the things is like either one is knowing that information and the B is being able to connect that information as well. So, you know, so a lot of people might, you know, like identify stuff, but they have absolutely no idea what value it has or how they could connect it to something else uh, along the way as well. And so and then I think this. Yeah, so I, so I completely agree. I think in a lot of like kind of the stuff you're saying, where um, the concept is that you you really uh, is is the the process of discovery essentially a progressive a building of knowledge to a point where you can make a decision. Yeah, you know, is is that really how we would end up defining uh, discovery? Like, yeah, like I'm I'm not quite sure exactly what the best definition is, but to me. Yeah, you know, one of the things I always found challenging is really around what you what your talk kind of talked about is that it's actually not very easy to identify, and yet a lot of my job and, and yeah, and I, I I would assume a lot of your job right now is to actually identify when when are we at the moment of discovery or are are we like one day before or are we you know ten days after now or are we a hundred days before like you know where in that timeline do we sit? And, and and I think one of the hardest things I think is actually to define that is to go over where do we actually sit. But but then from a corporate point of view, you know, like they really need to know: are we ten days before, or are we a hundred days before, or are we one day before, or whatever whatever that thing is. Yeah, you've got a plan, right? And it's it's like you know that's I think the thing that always amazes me with big companies like Newmont is how many people are involved in planning for something to go into production, right? And so if you can't give them some of the basics on that, all the rest of that mechanism is bound up waiting for us, right? I know. And I mean, they are like, you know, those guys are chomping at the bit for you to take like a project and like have enough resources so they can then like, you know, build it and, and, and get it into production and do all of those things. And And I think this is like, you know, like exactly what you said, like, you know, they are, I think, impatient, you know, like they're, they're, they're like, 
I, w- I would like to say they're patiently waiting, but you know, I think they're impatiently waiting for us to actually figure out what we have. And then, and we struggle because you know we just don't have the language or the mechanism to actually communicate that. I, I think in a lot of ways. And then, and I think, and I think maybe that creates that perception that often is right about well, the exploration guys. You know, they just drill holes and find nothing. And it's like, yeah, like you know, most people think we're just screwing around, uh, like you know, just spending money. And I think it like a lot of like, I mean, I genuinely think, um, you know, like I think it's a language problem. We're just not very good at communicating what our process looks like and and how many kind of like tentacles and branches and things that it actually has. Um, and, and, and so they just don't understand it. And you think about it, like sometimes it just takes a conversation where you sit down with the planners and the metallurgists and the engineers and you get like also essentially like the key people that would be needed to put a production, or sorry, a discovery into production. And you sit down and you go, okay, so we're like really early stage and we've got five holes in it. looks like it's really interesting. What do we need to do to satisfy your various like criteria to make this go into production? And, and I look at like that, that's that invincible thing. I think that's what we, we did really well is we like the whole team got on, like all the metallurgists and all the mine, mine engineers and the planners, environmental, everybody got, got together and we sat down and, oh, well, we need to collect really good geotech right up front so we can make, you know, uh, like just like pit slope assumptions. Right. And we need to do, um, you know, metallurgy right up front to see if this fits into the current, you know, like, uh, milling scenarios or whatever. And so, and, and I think that's why that, that mine went into production three years after the, the first drill holes. Right. So it's like, it was, it was like the fastest I've ever heard of a mine going into production. And it's like, but it was, we, we realized it was on the verge of like, this is, this is incredibly important for the site and, and we need to make it happen. And so I go back to like, the same thing with 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 my company, right? We need to have those conversations, and it's really easy to make a meeting that's on like WebEx or Zoom. That's like you know forty people on the meeting, and it's like, and then nobody feels any responsibility for it, right? Because it's like, oh well, what? Do you... And so it's much easier to be like, oh, you know what? I, I need to have a one-on-one meeting with the metallurgist, and we need to say, hey, what kind of met testing do you need us to do? You know, like like so we're trying to do this this uh, this next phase of drilling down dip. And we're just trying to figure out what our costs are going to be. And so it's like, how do we even do meta testing? Oh, you can't do it on NQ. You need us to do it on HQ. Oh, that changes the assumptions entirely. Oh, you need to do it on PQ. Oh my gosh. You know? And so, but you have that, that conversation. And then when, when you're ready to hand it off to the people to like make it a mine, cause that's what it always feels like is it's like, all right, it's tied up, packaged up. Here you go, make it a mine. And they go, there's no geotech. There's, there's no, there's no metallurgy. Like nobody's permitted this area, you know, like, like nobody's even talked to us that we would need to permit this area. So we haven't even had the conversations and, and I'm not saying we, we do that. Like, I think our company's pretty good at, at, at doing that, but I think everybody can improve at it. And, and it's, it's like, I think it's as simple as like picking up a phone and be like, Hey, do you have five minutes to talk about this? Cause we're getting ready to do this program. And it's, Cause yeah, otherwise it's an economic in, or sorry, it's, it's a, it's a geological curiosity that we've drilled. Right. And it's like, now it has yep. no way of going into oh, production. It's, uh, the, the dreaded technical success. Right. And it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, like, does it, does it matter to the company? Ah, who knows? We never talked to that part of the business and you're like, yeah, great. Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like, Oh, you know, we, we're not interested in this, this ore zone cause it's refractory or whatever. And, and then, it turns out like the metallurgists are like, we're dying for refractory ores to, to put through this, you know, like, or, or whatever. Right. And it's, it's like, it's so easy to make assumptions based on our very limited understanding of geology as, as a science, not as mining as a science. Right. And, uh, and it's, and like, I think that's like the real success is when you have those cross-functional teams 
who look at projects and like we, you know, like Newmont has all these, these uh, groups just to do studies, right? But it's, it's made up of people that have that cross-functional disciplines, right? So it's like, oh, okay, well, we need to work on, on this next phase of drilling needs to collect this kind of geophilic data. It can't just be RQD. It actually has to be, you know, like, like the whole suite, right? And, um, and I, I look at it, if you don't communicate where you're at in a discovery process, or, or it, it, obviously you, that makes a lot of effort because you have to try and understand where you're at too. But then they can't plan around that, right? So it's like they can't then say, "Oh, okay, well we'll uh, we'll dedicate these people." They'll say, "Oh no, like we're flat out on a project, and you just just spring this on us. We have no way to to to, to go through and do the the." <laughs> and so it's it's like really key to have those conversations. And I think like my my colleague um, Gustav is always like heavily bit like heavily involved in that because it's like that's the last thing we want is to to hand off a project and be told. Oh, sorry, that doesn't fit into the milling scenarios, or oh, sorry, that you know, like that. There's nowhere to store the tails, you know. And like, great, you found a new discovery, you know. Like now, now there's nothing that's going to happen with it. So it's, you know, to, to the dustbins of history it goes, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So I guess, I, like, you know, one of the questions I guess I always wanted to ask is, what, um, what did you want uh, out of giving this talk? I mean, is this yeah, did you want to crowdsource uh, like an idea about what what you wanted to define as discovery, or do you already have that kind of idea in your head, uh, but you wanted to to I guess stress test it in front of a bunch of people and then see whether similar people were having problems or sorry if people were having similar problems or people were having different problems or are you the only one standing on this ledge complaining about what is a discovery and everyone else is like man we understand it you know like uh yeah like scott's scott's lost his marbles and he doesn't know what what discovery is but the rest of us have a pretty clear idea about what discovery is so i think it's it's actually a bit of all of those things um i honestly did worry that i would stand up there and give that talk and then be like why is this yeah, even a talk? People, like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, I, I need to call. I need to call Newmont to tell him to sack Scott because yeah, he doesn't yeah, exactly. know what a discovery is. <laughs> no, that's that's the way it goes, right? But uh, and so it's a bit of. I guess the other thing I look at is um, I take the very long view on industry, right? And so on um, geologists that I that I work with or have worked with in the past, I hope to work with again in the future, right? And so I go if we can put this question out to the, the industry as a whole, maybe it'll help attract geologists who are interested in similar questions to, to come to Newmont and say, oh, well, I never considered them before. Um, so there's always like the, will people get interested in coming to work for us that, that might have not otherwise? And then also like, I hate to say, can we improve the industry as a whole? Because um, that sounds really egotistical. I don't think anything I can do is gonna fix the industry, right? But I go, maybe the questions I ask, maybe someone will come with an answer that I couldn't, right? And if we can discuss those things, maybe maybe that'll improve the industry. Maybe that will give a way to say, oh, you know what? Like I always talk about geological mapping and because I just hope that one day we'll find like a, a universal mapping solution that works like, you know, like for BHP and works for Newmont and works for Barrett. Huh. And obviously it has modules that are specific uh, to yeah. those companies, that, you know? That, that's an even bigger matzo ball than, uh, than what is discovery. Like, yeah, yeah that's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah, that's uh, crazy uh, talk, you know? Like discovery is yeah. easier to figure out than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and, we'll figure out discovery far, uh, like far earlier than ever figuring that out. Yeah. But I, so I guess that's part of it is like, can we as an industry do better? Can we, can me asking a question? Cause like I was, what I really loved was I, after the talk, I was actually like trying to, to head out. Cause I had like uh, to be home for, for dinner. Right. And I ended up having like two and a half, three hours of discussions with people who were just 
interested in it. And we're like, oh, well, what about this? And oh, I wanted to talk to you about this. And so then it gives me new ideas. So that's always like, I think like the personal interest side, right? For me, me personally, as I learn more about our field and about discovery and about like how to make exploration more successful because of the conversations with people. But then it also like hopefully improves individuals that we talk to where they go, Oh, you know, I never thought about that. And uh, you know, like I had like a couple of juniors come up and be like, that's really interesting. I wish our investors would think about stuff like that. And it's like, maybe you should talk to them about things like that. Maybe you should talk to them about what a, what a discovery is. Maybe we should be more open in, in terms of, of making this actually a, uh, um, you know, like uh, almost like a, a, a regular topic that shows up at conferences, right? Where it's just like, you know, because people will always talk about, I feel that there's like two kinds of talks with those things. There's the, well, maybe three. There's like the academics who talk about the things that they were working on in their PhD or whatever. And then there's the the companies who are pitching their project and their company. And, and then you have like the people who are like generally genuinely interested in the industry as a whole. And they're talking about like, Hey, I was working on this thing and it looks like it'd be really useful for the industry. And so maybe, maybe this talk will spur someone to, to, to do a, a better talk at a, at a future, you know, like a, a conference or something like that. And, and maybe it'll, it'll make it so that it gels more in our own minds of, well, okay, maybe this is what a discovery is. And maybe this is a really good, like good uh, definition for it. And like, even the comments I got on my LinkedIn post, I was like, this is like really insightful stuff. And it's like, I hadn't actually thought about this point. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I guess there's a bit of self-interest and then a bit of what, what can it do for the greater industry and what can it do for individuals? So, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, like, I guess I can, I can give kind of my perspective. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to throw you under the bus to, to get you to do this talk was, uh, yeah, like essentially for the same reason that, yeah, like I, I, I thought this was a problem uh, that uh, like, you know, was somewhat maybe felt somewhat embarrassing for me because at times like, you know, you were in these exploration groups and your job was to actually find something and, and kind of add to the, the inventory of the of the company that I was involved in. But I just never really understood what like, you know, what would we look like, you know, what exactly were we looking for? At what stage were we at on, on that kind of search? And, and exactly how did it all kind of fit? And I think these are probably questions, you know, like as you get kind of, you know, like higher up, um, higher up the organizational structure where you have to deal with kind of decision makers, you know, whether that's in a junior company you're dealing with investors or in a major company where you're dealing with kind of the executives. I think it's quite important to kind of talk about, you know, like the fuzziness around the the process or the the methodology of trying to get there. You know, that we well, what I hope is the last thing we should do is to tell people that it's a simple thing and that we have it under control because yeah, I think the reality is that it's not simple and I, there's a lot of uh, complexity that we have to gather knowledge on to try to unwind and kind of get get to that level. Um, and I think intuitively people understand that from the mining side because they go, oh, you know, we see the metallurgy and we see this, we know this is complicated stuff. But yeah, like maybe we don't quite explain that on, on the exploration side or the discovery side because people think, you know, exploration is just drilling holes into the ground and that's it. And, you know, if you drill enough holes in the ground, you're going to get something and then, and then you'll find out how big or how small it is or how valuable it is or whatever it is. You know, maybe yeah. that's actually maybe not like, you know, the drilling part is the part we understand, but the rest of it, you know, like we have a lot of fuzzy kind of logic around a lot of this stuff. And I think that's, that's like one of the, the key things that I guess I've learned is um, we need to be able better at communicating the uncertainty, not just the, 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 
definable uncertainties, but it's like the, we don't know what we don't know, you know, it's like, and it's like the things like just geometry changes are really, really difficult to figure out. Right. And, uh, and I think like a previous, previous employer I worked for years back, they, um, I think had done this kind of poorly where the, the team of decision makers essentially came up with the idea that, oh, discovery is linear. If we spend X amount of dollars, it finds X amount of mines. So if we want to find three mines, we'll triple the funding and then we'll find three mines. And, and that should have been a, a big communication like red flag to everybody that like, oh, this is the least linear process you could ever imagine. You throw money at expiration and you're not going to guarantee triple the success or double the success. It's not it's not um, manufacturing. It's not. It's not even mining engineering, right? It's like it's like. Oh well, we need to do twice as much uh, uh, scope optimizations. We'll hire another another engineer, right? It's like it's like. Oh, we need to do have twice as much discovery. Let's hire another geologist. It's like no, that's that's not how it works ever. And um, and I think it needs to be talked about and defined. And I always go back to like. Um, I, I become very comfortable with with sounding like an idiot over the years. Uh, I ask a lot of stupid questions because. I, if I don't know, I'm like, you know what I found in my career is if I don't know and I want to ask this question, there's probably someone else in the room that don't and would also want to ask that question. But but I, I'm OK with looking like an idiot so that they can learn because it's like and it's so sometimes it's so embarrassing where people are just like, Scott, really? It's like, how did you get to your job? <laughs> but it's and I, I almost go back to this talk is that right where it's like when I went into the talk, I actually did not expect that result of um, how many random retries I, I put into it where it didn't discover the system. And, uh, and, and that was actually really shocking because I expected it to occasionally happen where it's like, oh, okay, if we had drilled this pattern, uh, we would have found it, would have found it, would have found it. Oh, now we didn't. And instead it was like, oh my gosh, almost none of the patterns were successful at finding right i mean i forgot what i ran like 25 different drill patterns or something like that and i think like three of them were like oh yeah slam dunk you know found the ore deposit like off the races and i think that was actually way more frightening because i maybe i'm a little bit too much of an optimist because i i thought actually that we'd have better success than than we found and then i went oh wow if, if that's my assumption how many other people have that same assumption how many how many corporate teams have that assumption? We're like, oh, you know, they put five holes in a project, you know, and it's like, let's walk away. And it's completely, uh, you know, like that metric then gets pushed on to people, right? And then people go, well, uh, like exactly what you're kind of talking about. It's like, yeah, um, if we create this graph of like discovery and, and, and spend and people go, well, if X amount of dollars finds Y number of discoveries, then, you know, we're going to use that relationship and say, well, if I give Scott X dollars, he should find me Y discoveries. And then, you know, the, and then the question kind of becomes, well, he should be able to find them with, you know, Z number of drill holes or something like that. And it's like, well, Scott, did you drill Z number of drill holes? Yeah, I drilled them. And so do we now have Y number of discoveries? You go, no. And they're like, but you had X number of dollars and you drilled Z number of holes. So how come you don't have Y number of discoveries? And you go, because like, it's not like an equilibrium. It doesn't, it doesn't quite work in that, in that sense. And, and I think this is like, you know, so, so the corporate world kind of uses these simple metrics, but, but they're doing it in a way on a highly like complicated system, which, which is getting harder for us to kind of navigate at times because, you know, like we, like you said, we just don't know some things. And also I think, you know, the complexity of trying to find these things is obviously getting, 
is becoming more complex. Um, so hence, you know, complexity is becoming more complex. But you know, like it's a it's a problem that's becoming more complex. So uh, so you know, so and we're not communicating that sometimes. So people are still using these old models, and 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 we're getting hammered for it. I think in some ways. And it's it's kind of interesting because you look at um, not to to bash on Timmins or anything like that, but Timmins has been around for a hundred years, huge gold camp, right? And I think it's seventy nine million ounces of production or something like that, and it's it's just a, just a phenomenal gold camp, right? And so if you took and said, oh, there's X amount of drill holes in Timmins and X amount of mines, so therefore we need to drill X amount of holes to find a new mine, like you're never going to be successful, right? That is like ridiculous. It's like and and it's and I go back to like fundamental communication thing that we need to put across just to say, you know, like, like even, you know, we've got like world class geophysics there. We've got great mapping. We've got all these these like great data sets. And, and you can have a conversation with a four exploration geologists. Be like, where do you think this structure is going? And you get four different answers. And it's like, that's as good as it gets for definition, unless you did, you know, like, um, uh, like there's obviously like levels you can go to and then you could do like you know like ridiculous levels of drilling to, to follow some of these things out so we start projecting things like a kilometer or five kilometers away and going oh yeah like i i project these things will cross here or whatever like that's that is not how it works right it's it's, it's always well you know we thought the structure was running like this and then it was offset by another you know like like um you know post mineral shear zone and then it was up here or, oh, we actually thought it would be offset, but it, it turns out that the, we had to throw on that fault wrong, right? And so there's all these things where it's like, even the basics of like how to target drill holes is nonlinear, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, target the structures. I think everybody would say, oh yeah, target the structures. And like, and I remember early on in my career, and I might've might told this example as well. So um, I, I was leading this one team and we, I've been working there for a while and I thought like I had a pretty good understanding of the geology and, uh, and we're talking about, you know, like, oh, okay. Uh, so like my equivalent comes out to visit. Did I tell this story? If, if I did interrupt me, but um, just edit it all out. But uh, anyways, uh, he's like, um, he's like, oh yeah. So what's, what's your basic exploration criteria? And we're like, oh yeah, we're looking for dilatant uh, 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 fault jogs, you know, like, and so like we see these orientations with the, you know, the, the motion during gold time, it should be dilatant. And so we should get some nice ore shoots, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, great. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense. And he's like, uh, can anybody put like all the major mines on the board? And like someone goes up and draws all the, the major mines on this whiteboard. And I think like whiteboards, like one of the best things ever for helping geologists think, you know, and uh, he's like, okay, great. He's like, so let's put on here. Like how many of these were, were extensional jogs? Half of them. Half. So I had ignored half of our ex exploration search space because I got stuck in, in this idea. And it was it was obviously a successful one. Half the mines were, were this this type. But then there's a whole bunch of compressional jogs that didn't even look at. And I was like, oh my gosh, what a major failing on my part that I was so like blindered that I only was looking at these one, this one type of deposit. And it's like, and I ignored half of the ounces ever mined there. And I was like, okay, that's that's really embarrassing, right? But it stuck with me because this is the thing that I always tell people: like the, the main the main lesson I have to bring places is what what not to do. <laughs> and, uh, and so we'll be talking about <coughs> we'll be talking about exploration projects, and that's one of the big questions I ask: is are we locked into the dogma? Are we locked into this is what we need to search for when that's actually not the case? Maybe there's more. Maybe there's you know like maybe this. Like, oh yeah, only only greenstones run gold. But what about 
this deposit and this deposit and this deposit were in sediments. Maybe maybe sediments are a place we should explore as well. Maybe maybe like like one of the things I learned from a, a, a little company I worked at is um, it's phenomenal mapping from the, the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And so you could actually like figure out the, the, some of the geology in these areas that are obviously no longer accessible. And so it's like, okay, so why is there an ore deposit here? Why is this one ore shoot here? And it's like, so the, the gold fault cleverly named is running along like this and we're all in shales. And all of a sudden there's a little fold in the shales and instead of the gold fault being parallel to foliation or, or bedding, if you want, it's not bedding, but like, you know, the, the shistosity, um, instead of it running parallel to shistosity and then having like, like planar slip along the, the, the shistosity, now it turns 15 degrees or maybe it was even like 10 degrees. It was really, really like you wouldn't have like seen it on a map and gone like, oh, yeah, check out that big change in geometry. It was, it was super subtle. And all of a sudden you had an order shoot. And then it went back to the orientation it was, and it was all planar slip again. And it's like, oh, so if we're drilling in sediment, is it parallel to shear, shear sense? Or is it off of that? Because it's like, I know I'm, I'm probably not going to explore it somewhere parallel to shear sense based on my experience to date. And maybe I'll be proven wrong that that actually makes for great ore deposits if you have this criteria. You know, again, I, I'm, I'm really good at sounding like an idiot a lot of times, so I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, but it's like, maybe... If we're going to look in the sediments, we should focus on those areas. And so how do you figure that out? Mapping, right? And it's like, oh, well, you'd still do mapping. At, I actually got this question not that long ago. You still do mapping at at, uh, at this level of exploration, like on surface? And it's like, 100%. That's the only way until you start drilling or do tr doing trenches. It's the only way you know geometry. It's the only way you know, you know, like, like we were in one place and, and it was like, I always... I think one of the best pieces of career advice I ever received is don't start mapping until you've walked the whole outcrop. And um, so I've got this great structural geologist that works for me. And, um, and so we were out at the site and like, he's working with the, the, the teams on like structural geology and how to, how to measure these different things. And it was like phenomenal, right? Just like, you know, like I always enjoy people like that. Cause you just listen and just like, like he makes it simple and easy to learn anyway. So I like take the time to walk around the outcrop. Right. And it's like, okay, so then we get back and it's like, all right, so what do you, what do you notice that's a big change? Like in this outcrop, there's a very big change and it's super subtle. And they're like, what do, what do you see? And everybody's kind of looking around and they're like, oh, well, there's lots of folding over here. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, well, these beds are thinly bedded, you know, like one millimeter beds. And these ones are five centimeter beds. So if you have the same structure go through these two units, they're going to react differently because of the bedding thick. Yeah, I guess one of the things that, uh, you know, like if I kind of think about why we should ask these questions, you know, one of the reasons is just to kind of show people that that there is this uh, uh, that there is this diversity of kind of opinions that that that's it. So something that people would, would have thought would have been simple to identify or to explain is actually not very simple. And so how many other things in our industry do people actually think are quite simple but aren't? And, and and maybe, you know, like I'm not saying this to, uh, uh, you know, like to, to kind of um, make ourselves like feel a lot better or, or anything like that. But uh, I just think there are, I mean, there are certain practices that we do, which I think are, you know, like are our own fault. I mean, and we could do them a lot better. But there are certain things which are just, uh, you know, like we are not trying to create this problem. It's just that this problem exists and we don't really have a great way out of it right now. Um, but But we should communicate that. 
and, and and we shouldn't worry about sounding like idiots or sounding dumb when when we can't answer these questions because it is something that that's kind of hard to to kind of explain um i remember like you know when we did this uh podcast episode uh, around serendipity and um and, and yeah like and I, and I quite liked this because you know like i was talking to this researcher who'd spent a whole time studying uh serendipity you know she'd done an honors she's done a a master she done a phd on it she now re like teaches and and, I was like, and the first question i asked her was like you know like how do you define serendipity and she's like i don't have an answer uh, and yeah and yeah and like so, so like you know right away she's like you've kind of broken me on the first question because i don't have an answer <laughs> Um, like, this is what like, you yeah. researched. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, yeah, it took you like 23 years to, to get to this answer. And she's like, yeah. And, and she said something which I, qu I quite liked. And she's like, well, it's, act it's actually taking me 23 years to become comfortable with that answer. And I went, that's actually a pretty good response. Uh, that, that, yeah, like, yeah, um, that you now acknowledge the limits of kind of like your own knowledge or your own understanding. And, and now you're comfortable telling people that, that limit. And I think maybe... Yeah, like maybe that's how we have to be uh, in some ways around like certain things around discovery and exploration as well. We probably have to be comfortable with what we don't know or what we can't explain or what we can't easily, easily do in a lot of ways as well. And maybe that's that's the like, you know, that's our cross to kind of bear. Maybe we should become comfortable with telling people like decision makers and saying that, hey, you know, you're talking about, you know, like your perception of discovery is is this simplified model, but our perception of discovery is, yeah, to some degree, walking around in a dark room with no flashlight at times. So, uh, yeah, like, and that's what we have to be comfortable with. And that's the hard thing to say, especially if you're talking to it right. But the alternative is if you tell them what they want to hear, which is that we have this under control and we know exactly what we're doing and we can promise you X amount of discoveries over the next X years. That's that's a lie, right? And it's like. And, and like, and I hate to say that because it's like we have an I we have indication, but I, I think we really need to be comfortable with telling. Also, we have to tell not just the high ups. But we also have to tell the, the junior geos that too, because I I run into a lot of junior geos when I've said stuff like that. They've been like, oh, I thought that was just me, and I was like really like, oh, I'm a terrible geologist, and this this this. It's like no, that's that is this. That's that's why it's not just a science, right? It's a science and an art, and. And it's really hard because you get a lot of people that assume that they have to know those things and that they're just bad at their jobs if they don't. And, and it's like, there's so much that we can't know, right? Like um, I, I, I read a quote, it was kind of funny. Um, my, my wife and I went up to Breckenridge, Colorado the other day. And um, so it's former mining town. There's now a big ski town, all the, the former mining towns in Colorado, right? And there's this book of quotations on the on the wall. And actually I, I got a photo of it. Cause so it's like, it was like written in the twenties. And so it was really, really old. And um, let me see if I can find this quote. Yeah, here it is. So it was like, quotations so you just like like turn the page to a section and i was like what are there any quotations on geology and it's just like there's no way they're gonna have a quotation on geology and that too but i'll read one of them geology gives us a key to the patience of god and it's like you think about that this stuff is so complex and so long informing it's impossible to know in a tiny short lifetime like ours right where you could you could literally dedicate yourself a lifetime to understanding an outcrop if you went into sufficient detail to fully characterize it in every way possible on one out, right? And so it's like, how do we do that on a large scale? How do we do that 
like, and, and say, and how do we pretend that we actually, right? Because what I've gotten, I guess, more comfortable with is that I'll never know some of these things, right? Like I can't see back in time. I can't do the whole time traveler thing and watch erosion happen in front of my eyes, right? And so I can't know, and I need to be okay with that. I need to be comfortable with that. And I need to also communicate that to the higher ups and to the people that report up through through to me and my my colleague and, uh, and, and be like, that's okay. But what we can do is we can come up with a plan on how to learn more, right? So we can say, okay, I don't know this, but I can collect rock chip samples. I could do isotope analysis. I could do thin sections. God help us if we return to thin sections, right? You know? And it's like, and it's like, and we we might not be able to know everything, but it goes back to like what what's most important for us to know. And I think that's actually the most important part of my job is when I go to sites, like just like that example on the, the outcrop with a structural geologist, right? Is like I don't have to know more than people. I don't have to know more, more about structural geology. I don't have to know more about geochemistry. I have to know who does know so I can bring them in. But ultimately, I have to try what my, my main job is I have to try and understand what matters most here. And that's really difficult. And, and it's also what I love about my job because I have to translate all these other disciplines where people spend a lifetime and, and a PhD or two learning them. And I have to translate it into what matters here the most. And then I have to communicate that. And I have to work with other people on how they can communicate. And that's really, it's really fun, but it's also really amorphous, right? It's like, cause like I'll show up and be like, oh yeah, I've seen a lot of rocks by now, right? It's in a lot of different deposits. I've seen a lot of different deposit styles. And uh, and it's actually like, it was really fun. Like we were in, in, in uh, one of our projects recently where we looked at a very large part of the project. And I was like, you know, it's like, it's interesting. You guys have never seen this kind of deformation. And they're like, oh yeah, it's just, it's just not here. And then we happened to go to this one new area that nobody had ever been and saw this other style of deformation. And it was like, it does exist. And it's like, and they're like, well, you know, like, and we're talking about it. And so it's like, well, I don't know if it's going to exist, but I've seen other systems that have similar things. And so I was, I was looking for those things and I go, okay, um, do we see stretching lineations? Do we see, uh, you know, refolding folds? Do we, that's you know, like fine. what, like, and it's, and I and think, I think that's the, yeah, I think one of the things that you're saying, which I quite like is that, yeah, like it's really around, uh, like I often describe it as like a, like a sports team, like, you know, like take any kind of sport, uh, you can easily identify the teams that uh, you know are going to be good uh, versus the teams that you know are going to be bad. And there are some, like, definable characteristics about good teams. Yeah, like, they tend to be well-coached. Uh, you know, they have, usually have a game plan that you can understand and see that, you know, the game plan repeats and, 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 and you know, and they can execute that game plan. That's, that's, that's also a fundamental part of it. Um, and, you know, and they have uh, like a roster of, of players that can always fill holes. Like, you know, it's not dependent on one person that gets injured and then the whole team and the game plan kind of goes by the wayside. And so, but but that's not always necessarily the team that always wins. Uh, you know, like they, there's injuries and there's all these other things that kind of come into play. And, you know, like maybe they play against, you know, like a team where their game plan doesn't match up very well and then they lose and all of that stuff. But but I always think that it's always easy to identify teams that play well and the teams that play play badly. And and I think that's kind of how I think a little bit about like, about exploration that, you know, like what we want to do is we want to do more good things than bad things. So, you know, like we want to have more good in our on our side of the fence. And hopefully that will 
like get to a point where we'll get good results and you know and we can kind of build on it and go from that point of view but if we're just doing terrible things and we're not very well aligned and we're not all of these things then you can then you know all you're really hoping for is is luck yeah like that that that's it that's your only out out of the whole process so so maybe what we should work on is just trying to get good practices and then seeing how they can compound into something good along the way as well I think that's that's exactly it is if you're reliant on luck even though I talked about that being an aspect of analysis if you're reliant on it it's like the people who play the lottery because they don't have a retirement plan so they're they're like counting on the on the the lot and I, I read that was something like 35% of the men's or something like that like count on the winning the lottery to be their retirement and uh you know like and, and the lottery is just a tax on people who can't do do math right so <laughs> but but I go back to like, what we need to do is we need to capitalize so that if we do have luck, that we're in a position to take it, right? And so we need to improve our skills. We need to improve our, our people. We need to improve improve like our, our morale, right? So like having a happy team that gets along well and shares information well is far more likely to be able to capitalize on that lucky moment when it does arrive, right? And um, we really need to take ego out of it too. You know, like I, I see... So many people where they assume that they're the smartest person in the room and that only they can do this. And I just go, that, that, that's not what we're doing here. Like I look at um, with, with my role, I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I have to, I have to know who are all the smart people so I can try and corral them and, and drive them towards a, a, a goal or whatever. But ultimately the teams that I love working with, they're the teams that they, they banter with each other. They, they give each other hell over, over little things and uh, <laughs> and they they get along and they they can share information because they're comfortable that the other person's not going to steal it for their own personal benefit, right? That they're like, oh, if I tell this person that I saw this, 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 they'll they'll reciprocate and will collaborate. And it's like, and not like the, I mean, everybody's always talking about collaboration these days, but it's like, but like true collaboration is is where people want to share. They want to get better. They want to see their, yeah, their it's teammates not, uh, get better. Like, it's not mandated or something like that. Yeah, it just happens naturally because yeah, like you have a vested interest in making other person uh, person's ideas or or uh, output better, and they have the same vested interest in your ideas and output. Yeah, you know, that that is a true kind of uh, kind of way that it should work. Yeah, and it's and it kind of goes back to like that. Uh, I think it was Roy Woodall that was talking about the importance of hiring. Right. And I keep quoting him. So he's, he's going to be like my my uh, the third most common word I say is Roy and the fourth is Woodall. But uh, so anyways, um, uh, at the end, of the, you're not the only one. So it's OK. Yeah. But but he talks about like one of the most important things is hiring, Right. And, and I've seen this before where you can hire brilliant, people, extremely well qualified that destroy teams and they make a well-functioning team implode and everybody turn against everybody else. And I've seen other teams where they're like. Maybe not the best expirationists, but because they work so well as a team, they have the best expiration success, right? And and so it's like if you're not paying attention to every single person you're hiring, you're you're throwing that that opportunity out the window, right? Where you could you could in any moment destroy your team because you didn't care to be involved in the hiring process, right? And and it's like whether it's a junior geo or a senior geo or an expiration manager. That's all critical, and um, and it's it's like it's one of the things I really like with my my company and the management team I work with 
is they talk about those things. So like, you know, like our group executive in charge of like the America's expiration, we talk about individuals on teams and who would fit well and what team. And, and like, we're always like, he's tasked me with trying to identify people that would be good to, to rotate into other regions if they're interested. And so it's like, it's not just like mentorship, it's development too. Right. And it's, and that's, that's slow and it takes time, but, but like, he'll, he'll like, we'll, we'll have conversations about geos that I interacted with on the outcrop and be like, Oh yeah. You know, they're, they're just a contract core logger, but they're really good. And like, they're super passionate and they, 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 they really get it. We need to find a way to bring this person on full time. And I'm talking about this with our group executive, right? It's like, you know, so it's, and I think that's key is, is just having that, that, that trust back up and down through the organization that you'll bring on the right people and that you'll try to drive forward. And yeah, you can't, you can't kill your teams because someone looks good on paper. You know, it's, it's, that's, yeah, you can blow up a great that's team right. by doing that. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm getting the wrap up from, uh, from Sean. So we got 10 minutes left. You got out of answering these questions last time. Uh, so, you know, the two questions we ask each guest at the end. Uh, so Scott, what is an idea that you think needs to die in our industry? It can be an idea, concept of behavior, something that we need to jettison out of, out of our industry. So we talked about this a little bit and I, I probably could have come up with a better one and I tried and, and I even wrote these down last time and I thought about them for the last like while and I haven't come up with anything better. So my idea is to die is this idea of drilling by numbers, like IE expiration is, is actually non-linear and, uh, like things like target rate and ranking is a tool, but it shouldn't become the entire process because it's not linear. It's not, you do this, you drill X amount of holes, you find X amount of mines. So that idea, and I've seen it happen over and over again, where it's like rate and rank exercises can become tyrannical. And then you have to drill the highest target. And it's like, well, no, this is an exercise to get you to think about things. It's not something that you should be beholden to drill one, two, three, four. And because unfortunately, like expression's not linear, right? Like sometimes it's it's only the artistic recognition, you know, like that, that this is going on or going back to the fish analogy of going, if I cast just like this, it'll it'll get, you know, like delivered right to the right part of this, the stream, but there has to be a fish there, right? So, and ideas that live or must live, uh, mentorship. So I talk about this, like where I provide mentorship, I don't even think that's the kind of mentorship that I think we really need. What we need is a senior geo in the field with junior geos doing hands-on work and explaining it as they do it, right? And so um, years ago, I had the, the privilege to talk to, I think his name was Bob Horton, and he was uh, the head of the U.S. Bureau of Mines under Ronald Reagan. And um, and so he's like, we have this thing in Nevada, is the Geological Society in Nevada. So great organization for young geos listening, join that because like, I just learned so much. So I happened to sit next to this guy at dinner and we were just talking and I'm like, gosh, this guy is like the former head of the Bureau of Mines and Geology, which is now like USGS, right? And um, and we're talking, he's like, when I was a, a young student, he's like, this guy, Vincent Gianelli, hired me in Virginia City as, as a field hand. And so I was working in Virginia City at this time. And so I knew who Vincent Gianelli was because I, I looked at all his maps and he did phenomenal mapping. And so he described this process of like, He's a junior geo and he went everywhere that Vincent Gianelli did in this, this mapping project. He went to all the underground mines. He sampled all the stuff with him. He did all the hard jobs. He did all the good jobs, but he learned 
from this guy who I view now as like a master of, of the subject of mapping. Right. And, and of course, you know, like everybody can improve. Right. But, uh, but he spent time with him. And so I look at that, like, it's like, one of the things that I really like is like, I've got um, my, my structural geologist employee. And so his name's Will. And so Will comes along and we, we go on projects together. And I, I, I don't think I've told him that I'm meeting him, but it's like, a lot of it is just, we do the job and we talk about the job. We don't just say, oh, you're going to log core for six years and, and not yeah. do anything else. Or you're going to have like three mentoring hours with me every whatever year or or, or stuff like that. You know, it's not like, again, it's not a metric that can be put into people's uh, thing. It has to be a part of your job as you do it. Yeah. And so like, like uh, shout out to um, uh, Dick Reed was the former uh, chief geologist, North America uh, a few years back, talking to a couple of junior geos and I wanted them to go and map on this one project, but they didn't have like the skills and experience. So our, 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 our chief geologist from North America went and mapped on this project with these two young geos for a week and just, here's how I map and here's how I do this. And it's all reconnaissance scale. So it's very different from what they were experiencing, which is like mind scale, detailed mapping. And so it's like, here's how you do reconnaissance scale mapping. And, and I think there's so much value to just going along with someone, especially someone like Dick Reed, like just like wealth of knowledge and information. And so it's like, and, and I look at like, that's, uh, something that I now am trying to model as well is like this guy showed me how that should be done. And so I'm like, I should be doing the same thing. So when I go in the field, it shouldn't just be a field visit to, for me to gather information. I need to share my thoughts and my workflow and what I'm looking at and the things I'm confused by and the things like, how, how do I going to get past those confusions? And, um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not like traditional mentorship. It's almost like apprenticeship. And uh, so that's what I want to see live in this in this this industry. I think those are both excellent ones. I, I love the the apprenticeship. I think yeah, like uh, in, in some ways, mentorship is like an easy way out of uh, apprenticeship, right? And 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 we we run to that because it's easy and it can be done in an HR way and all that stuff. But really, what we are looking for is apprenticeship because that's where the the, the transfer of tacit knowledge actually goes goes through. Um, and, I, and I think that's something that, you know, we are kind of missing in this industry to a large degree. Yeah. And it's only made worse by the lost generation, right? Like the missing generation of the, the geos 40 to 60. How many of them do you know worldwide? I think I counted 23 that I know worldwide between 40 and 60. And it's like, and you're looking at like people like me, I had a couple early experiences where I had I had a couple great mentors early in my in my geology career, and it made all the difference in the world, right? And it's and it was it was more of an apprenticeship than anything else. So it's like I worked for them, but they shared that with me. And it's like, and so yeah, what happens when all those folks retire? If we haven't passed on that tacit knowledge, it's gone. I know we're pretty close to that line as well. So um, yeah, so I think it's something that yeah, you know, like we're only going to know in about ten years what what the cost of that that really is. So yeah. um, anyway, Scott, this was great. Uh, we we could keep going. I think we could do a, a, a third episode as well. But uh, part, part three of infinity. <laughs> All I can say is thanks a lot for coming on the show again. This was great. I was to say hopefully hopefully it adds something to someone because I know one of the things I've really enjoyed about the show is learning new ideas, new ways of thinking and, and hearing like what's gone right and what's gone wrong. And, and, and so I, I hope that whatever I've talked about has been beneficial to someone, how the show has been beneficial to me personally. So it's uh, thanks for the, the invite to be on it. 
uh, you have a you have a standing invite to come back anytime. Uh, so yeah, so we'll we'll leave it there. So anytime you want to come on and ask any other simple yet seemingly dumb questions, and we wanted to have a discussion about, it, we're happy to have you on. All right, no, that sounds like a plan. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Scott. All right, talk to you guys later. Magnetic survey coverage continues to expand rapidly worldwide, but the ability to assimilate this data into exploration programs has not kept pace. Southern Geoscience, a global leader in integrating geophysical knowledge, will be offering their Integration of Aeromagnetic and Geology course ahead of the 2023 PDAC conference. This introductory and hands-on course aims to enlighten participants on the strengths and weaknesses of potential field methods and to illustrate how they can best be used to advance exploration programs. The course will run in person in Toronto on the 2nd and 3rd of March 2023. For more information or to register, go to sgc.com.au. That's sgc.com.au. Or follow them on LinkedIn. Early bird rates apply until the end of January. Until next time, let's keep exploring. Thanks to Scott for coming on our show and Sean for putting it together and to you all for listening. I'm your host, Amart, and this is Exploration Radio. Exploration Radio is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Geoscientists, One to One Group, and the Assay. Exploration Radio is also an official media partner of the 2023 PDAC Conference. Until next time, let's keep exploring.